0: Welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our second of two holiday reboot episodes for you during this holiday season. So, today we go all the way back to the year 1812, and specifically to the War of 1812, a war between the United States and Great Britain, which of course saw fighting occur on the soil of British North America. But specifically, we're going to go to Upper Canada, and the focus of our discussion today is the militia of Upper Canada. That's right, the militia. And so that is basically the part-time military that existed in Upper Canada at the time. The simple fact is there was a lot of question marks about the loyalty and the quality of the militia of Upper Canada. And there was a general, a British general named Isaac Brock, whose job it was to make sure that that militia was ready to fight in case the Americans came. And this episode deals with how Brock went about doing that, but also the pretty serious obstacles in his way in ensuring that the militia would show up and fight on the day the Americans arrived. So, without further ado, let's go back in time, all the way back to Season 2. Here is the Missing Militia, the Upper Canadian Militia during the War of 1812, Holiday Reboot. When war broke out between the U.S. and Britain in June 1812, the situation in Upper Canada was precarious. A large number of Americans lived in the region, whose loyalty was dubious at best. There was a small number of British regulars, who could certainly be relied upon, And there were thousands of militia of varying quality and reliability. The few militia that were equipped and trained were frankly extremely hesitant to show up to fight the Americans. Overall, the defensive situation in Upper Canada looked bleak. People were either ill-equipped, ill-trained, or unwilling to fight. And yet the Americans were coming. How was Upper Canada to be defended? Let's go back to the situation in late 1811 and early 1812. Britain and the United States had been at odds since the end of the American Revolution. Many Americans felt that the job of creating a great North American republic was not quite finished while the British held possessions in North America. Many Americans were also angry at British economic sanctions as part of the British war against Napoleon. As well, the U.S. government blamed the British, somewhat accurately, for supporting the First Nations in the Ohio Territory south of the Great Lakes, These nations were engaged in a series of bloody conflicts trying to stop American expansion west. Finally, the Americans were angry at the British policy of impressment. This was a policy whereby the British literally took sailors off of American vessels, whom they believed to be British citizens, and forced them into service in the British Navy. Broadly speaking, it was these main reasons that eventually led to war breaking out between Great Britain and the United States in 1812 a war that would see the U.S. attempt to liberate slash conquer the remaining British territories in British North America. Now, let's go to Upper Canada on the eve of the war. Upper Canada is pretty much the territory of today's southern Ontario. Its capital was York, now we know it as Toronto, and it was a large territory inhabited by mainly English-speaking British North Americans, several thousand Americans, and a smattering of First Nations. On the eve of war, most Upper Canadians frankly thought conflict would be avoided. After all, tensions had existed since the end of the American Revolution, and nothing had happened so far, what was to say anything would happen now? Yet war was coming, and the man put in charge of preparing Upper Canada was the soon-to-be legendary Isaac Brock. Since the fall of 1811, Brock had been trying to prepare Upper Canada for this eventual American invasion. Most of this energy was spent trying to get the Upper Canadian militia into shape. The militia was essentially every able bodied male in Upper Canada between the age of 16 and 60, who was basically expected to fight when the time came. Now, Upper Canada, on paper, had a militia of roughly 13,000 men, but on paper and in reality were entirely different things. Less than half of the militia ever actually showed up when ordered to muster for training. Most of the militia that did show up had almost no training. In fact, most militia training weekends were merely excuses to drink and socialize with one's neighbors, whom one didn't see very often. As well, significant shortages in weapons, ammunition, and gear further hurt the effectiveness of the militia that actually showed up to train and not drink with their buddies. Nonetheless, Brock sought to turn this ragtag group of upper Canadians into something close to an efficient force that could support the British regulars stationed in the area in the event of an American invasion. It's important to note here that the British regulars were expected to do the bulk of the fighting. The militia were intended to support this sort of central fighting effort. One of the ways Brock sought to do this and create this sort of support military system was to create flank companies. Essentially. Brock selected a number of men from the various militia regiments. Each regiment would consist of 200 to 500 men drawn from specific districts within Upper Canada. And the men selected would form these flank companies, you know, consisting of somewhere between 30 to 100 men, depending on the numbers available. Uh, these flank company militia men would be better trained and equipped and would, in theory, stand on the flanks or the sides of the British regulars doing most of the fighting in the center of the battle line. Brock figured he could get somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 flank militia. As well, Brock formed a 700-man volunteer unit known as the Glengarry Light Infantry Fencible Corps, or we'll just call them Fencibles for our purposes here. This corps, or this Fencible unit, was made up mostly of Scotsmen from Upper Canada, but some volunteers came as far as Prince Edward Island. These volunteers would undergo much more serious and intensive military training. They would not be as effective as British regulars, but they would be much more effective than the flank militia. With the flank companies, defensible regiment, and with about 11,000 regular militia on paper, plus the British regulars in the region, Brock felt he could execute a successful defense of the province. Now all this did look good on paper. But in reality, Brock encountered numerous problems that continually hurt his ability to muster the entire defensive strength of Upper Canada. High rates of desertion were common throughout all the units. When it was harvest time, or when men simply had enough of the training, they were apt to go home. Desertion rates in some units could reach as high as 75% of the entire unit's strength. Frankly, there would be no easy solution to the desertion problem. It would plague the British for most of the war. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. Another problem was that weapons issued by Brock to members of the militia seemed to often disappear. Muskets were expensive, and it was certainly an easy way to make some money for the average militiaman, just sort of selling it on the black market, so to speak. Often, soldiers would return to their units during muster time, claiming that they had lost their weapons. Brock solved this problem by having most muskets kept under lock and key in storage, and he would distribute them when needed and expected them back after the training or the combat occurred. Now, another reason for using the King's Stores, as they were called, was that a number of militia were actually Americans having migrated to Upper Canada in the decades following the American Revolution, and there was significant mistrust by the British authority towards those born in the United States. Now there is another fighting force that Brock could call upon that we haven't mentioned yet, and that was the First Nations of Upper Canada. Specifically, the Iroquois of Upper Canada, members of the legendary Six Nations Confederacy, were quite ambivalent towards going to war. The Iroquois on the U.S. side, who had been members of the same legendary Six Nations Confederacy, had adopted a position of neutrality and urged their Canadian brothers to do the same. As well, the Iroquois of Upper Canada were hesitant to have to go to battle against their American brothers in case they did join up to fight. This is an interesting moment to reflect on the artificial borders created by Europeans cutting through long-standing territories of Aboriginals. Thus, while on paper it seemed like Brock had a sizable force to defend Upper Canada, in reality the situation was looking quite bleak when war was declared. Nonetheless, Brock had a job to do. When he got the news that war had been declared, he ordered the flank companies to join him with the British regulars and all muster at Fort George on the Niagara Peninsula, just east of modern-day St. Catharines, Ontario. Now almost immediately Brock suffered desertions from his flank companies. All lack of blankets, clothing and gear had frankly led most men to just head back home. Nonetheless, on the 11th of July 1812, the Americans, led by General William Hall, crossed the border at Detroit, beginning the first of several invasions of British North America. And frankly, Hall met very little to no resistance. Most people, including the militia, just stayed inside. This was further helped by the fact that Hall guaranteed that anyone who stayed neutral would have their private property left alone. And in fact, a small number of Upper Canadians in the West actually joined Hall's force. That's right, approximately 50 to 100 men volunteered to join Hall as a cavalry scouting force. Now most of these men were Americans, but some were actually disgruntled Upper Canadians looking for a chance to strike back at the British authority. Hall was easily able to move throughout the countryside in sort of western upper Canada and eventually besieged a small Anglo-Canadian force holed up at Fort Amherstburg on the southern tip of the Detroit River. Now, while Hall stood outside the walls of Amherstburg, momentum actually swung back in Brock's favor when on 17 July, a small British force captured an American force at Micolamackinac in northern Michigan. That's right, Micolamackinac. Say that three times fast. With the news of this almost bloodless British victory, a number of the Canadian Iroquois actually decided to join the fight. Warriors from the Miami, Shawnee, Ottawa, and Delaware nations joined Brock's force at Fort George. Brock thus felt that now the time was ripe to drive Hull back across the border. Though he was facing constant desertions, it was only through his sheer force of character that he kept any sort of militia together at all. By 13th of August, Brock's mixed force of British regulars, Canadian militia, and Iroquois warriors arrived at Amherstburg to find out the Americans had actually already left. You see, disease and lack of food forced Hall to cross back to the U.S. side and settle back in Fort Detroit. But Brock wasn't done. He decided to go on the offensive. He crossed the border with his ragtag group and incredibly managed to capture Fort Detroit without firing a single shot. How did he do this? Well, the first thing he did is he dressed up all his militia in the red coats of the British regulars. This made Hull think that Brock had a much stronger force than in reality. As well, and I think this one tipped the scale, Brock threatened to unleash his Iroquois warriors on Hull and his men were the fort to fall during battle. You see, Hull and most of the Americans under him, and frankly Brock and all his men as well, were all deathly afraid of the Iroquois. So Hall, very much tricked by Brock, surrendered Fort Detroit without firing a shot in its defense. At this point, it's interesting to note that Brock had roughly 400 militia left with him. That's about 7% of the total militia in the Western Upper Canadian region, and about 4% of all the militia in Upper Canada. It seemed that Brock had both luck and some cunning on his side in keeping the Americans on their side of the border. Unfortunately for the Upper Canadians, though, Brock was to be killed on the 13th of October at the Battle of Queenston Heights. This was an Anglo-Canadian victory in stopping the Americans from invading once more. The loss of Brock, however, would be a serious blow to the British defense of Upper Canada. Brock's replacement was Sir Roger Sheaffe, and he would have an even harder time getting the Upper Canadian militia to fight. In late October, he called a summons for 5,000 militia to assemble on the Niagara Peninsula, Only 846 showed up. The conditions that these men had to endure once in camp were terrible. Disease spread almost immediately. Accidents were commonplace. In fact, an upper Canadian militia soldier had a better chance of being killed by disease or being accidentally shot by one of his comrades than dying or being wounded in actual battle. Within a few days, scores of the 846 militia began to go back home. What began as a trickle of desertions soon became a torrent. Chief was so concerned about his reputation being damaged in the face of these desertions that by early December, he dismissed all of his militia, essentially adding official sanction to what was already occurring and trying to look like he was still in control. Now, at this point, you might ask, why didn't the Americans just come in and capture Upper Canada? The militia were ambivalent, barely showing up. It seemed like the countryside was ripe for conquering. Well, the Americans were suffering from very similar militia issues, The American militia often refused to leave state lines. Even for those militia that did cross the state lines, equipment and food shortages meant that disease and hunger were constantly forcing men to turn back. And finally, the British regulars at this point in the war were simply much better soldiers than the American regulars. When the forces finally met in battle, the British regulars were able to inflict enough damage to prevent any wholesale American victory. At the end of the day, both sides struggled with serious militia issues, meaning this war was going to be settled primarily by the professional soldiers, but that is a tale for another time. The War of 1812 will end in a draw. Thus, we surprisingly do not see a patriotic stirring amongst the hearts and minds of Upper Canadians in the face of an American invasion. The vast majority of Upper Canadians sought to stay inside and avoid conflict, while British regulars and officers struggled with what few men they could muster. Truly, for most Upper Canadians, their involvement in the war was a professional commitment as members of the missing militia. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Horace, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Patreon, and you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.